That's how we have to start. <laughs> All right, everybody. So <laughs> that's our warm ups. We love to do our warm ups. We're going to discuss some comedies from 1981. This is going to be a two parter episode. So this, you're going to hear the first part here, and then we're going to take a break with a commercial break or something like that. And then we'll play the second half because there's a lot of great comedies in 1981. And it's really the dominant genre at this time uh, that's still talked about. Yes, there's a lot of great dramas. But a lot of those aren't really particularly... They don't hold up as well. Um, action movies really haven't kicked into high gear. Sci-fi movies are still in the uh, glow of uh, Star Wars. So they really haven't become their own thing outside of like just copying Star Wars. So I really believe that comedy and horror are probably kings of 1981. You know, now that you think about it, like looking at the stuff of 81, it, yeah, it's all just mostly comedy. Yeah, so we you tried know, to go I mean, through the list. Well, I watched, I yeah, I watched a lot of comedies, and I only chose the ones that were more interesting to show you. And so we split it in half. And uh, the first part of this is going to be Stripes, History of the World Part One, Bustin' Loose, and a very obscure favorite of mine called Nobody's Perfect. Spelled with a K, mind yes, mind, yes. Uh, let's start off with the biggest hit of the bunch, Stripes. Yes, I will have to say, again, Ivan Reitman, Bill Murray, and, oh my gosh, Harold Ramis. I can't believe I almost blanked on his name. I had, like, quite an all-star cast. Uh, is this where, like, was this one of John, Judge Reinhold's, like, first films as well? It is. He was in uh, Running Scared first. And you, know, you may be thinking, no, Billy Crystal, Gregory Hines, that's 1986. No. There was another Running Scared in 1980 with Judge Reinhold and Ken Wall, and it's an action thriller. He was not funny. Oh, oh wow. So he started off serious. Yeah, I haven't seen the movie in like 25 years, but if I remember correctly, like two military cadets or whatever, they witnessed a murder and they were on the run. I think that's the plot. Oh, dang. Huh. Huh. I'll have to look into it. The uh, Originally, but, I didn't know this until just a few minutes ago while I was waiting for you to be ready. I kind of looked it up on trivia on IMDb, and Dennis Quaid was actually set up to originally be uh, Harold Ramis's part, but Bill Murray wanted somebody that he had worked with before and that he knew could do improv. Oh, absolutely. He had to go to Harold Ramis. I mean, they were together during the National Lampoon days when they were on the radio. They were like, that's where they all started off. And then, of course, you know, Caddyshack. Right. And wasn't Harold Ramis the writer for Saturday Night Live? Well, uh, SCTV. Oh, SCTV. He was a writer for SCTV. Yeah, so, yeah, of course. And their chemistry just, you know, blends perfectly together. They've been, like, best of friends ever, ever since. Well, I've been uh, reading into that. Apparently their relationship fell apart on Groundhog Day because they really got into it. Bill is difficult to work with at times. And even on this movie, with his friends in it, uh, he didn't show up until the third day of filming because he was too busy watching Cubs games. So, I mean, I mean as a filmmaker, oh, wow. I, would, I would be pissed. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know you're a devoted Cubs fan, Bill Murray, and, well, you got your wish in 2016, but now, come on, man. Just help your friends out. Yeah. Their thing. But, um, yeah, just looking into this, the history was originally set up to be a project for Cheech and Chong, 
And I, I think I said on the last episode of you know the comedies of 1980 is that Cheech and Chong turned it down because they wanted more control. What I didn't know was that was the rumor, but the truth is is that Cheech and Chong's manager demanded 25% of uh, the next five Ivan Reitman films. Even if Cheech and Chong were not involved, he still demanded 25% because he thought he could make Ivan Reitman. Apparently not aware that Meatballs had already made quite a bit of money. Oh my gosh, that's right, Meatballs. Yeah, did that come out the same year? It came out the year before. No, two years before, 79. Oh, okay. Yeah, oh wow, yeah, no, how dare he? Yeah, it's a dick move for sure. And so that took them out of the running, and then he had how Harold Ramis uh, signed on, and that's when they went back and said, hey, let's grab Bill Murr because you guys work really well together, you have a history. I, I don't know, how, the, when you read trivia, sometimes it's out of order, so I don't know if PJ Souls was uh, cast, and then that's when Dennis Quaid was auditioning for Harold Ramis's part. Or what, because they were dating at the time. It's kind of a convoluted timeline when you look at the trivia, but somewhere along the way, um, Bill Murray was added to it, and that changed everything. And I think, if I remember correctly, he wasn't supposed to be a part of Ghostbusters. It was supposed to be Belushi, Aykroyd, uh, Harold Ramis. But because uh, uh, Belushi died, you know, that's when they started talking to Bill Murray. Yeah, no, it was... Yeah, it was like a SNL, like... Uh, alumni of the original class like all together in this movie pretty much but again yeah knowing um if chichin chong did want more creative control i'm like it's a good thing they it's a good thing for them not to get that because we've seen what happens when they get full creative control oh like, god oh, yeah man. well we're we're hitting <laughs> we're hitting the last few years of chichin chong even being relevant because um i believe what well, it goes uh up in smoke um, the next movie, and then I think it's okay. Nice Dreams is 1981, and that's the last time I think you really made you, you're a watchable Cheech and Chong movie. Though I have a weird soft spot for things are tough all over, um, even though it's severely problematic. But those guys, I think, just wanted to shoot quickly, get it done and over with, and get back on the road creating you know content and, and, and you know getting. That's where most of the money comes from comics. You know, you're on a film set, you may not be making that much, but when you go out on the road, you're making that much in a month over and over and over again right yeah so I yeah you know kind of now that you mentioned that it does kind of make sense because some of their films definitely felt rushed heck even Corsican Brothers said I gotta stop stuff for that because you know I was a kid and I still find it enjoyable that's it's the one I've never been able to finish I cannot get through Corsican Brothers <laughs> damn Sorry to hear that. No, it's okay. Uh, we <laughs> also have the wonderful John Candy shaving his head and uh, wrestling, mud wrestling in this movie. And this is, I think, the first time people oh have really God. seen him outside of SCTV. Yeah, I think so, because I don't think he was anything major before that. No, nah, he did he a few blue Canadian, blue. like, little, really, really tiny Canadian movies, but mostly it was just SCTV. And I think... Well, that's right. He is in Blues Brothers. I forgot about that. So that is not his breakout, uh, or, or Stripes is not his breakout. It's Blues Brothers where people first started seeing him. Right, but I'd say he had a bigger impact with Stripes, especially with the mud wrestling scene. <laughs> oh, man. Bill Murray the entire time just, like, messing with him, yet pepping him up. <laughs> there's, a, there's a character actor in this that I'm quite fond of, and his name is John Deal. 
you may not know who he is by name, but he is the guy in Stripes who's kind of dopey. Um, he's a bit of a simpleton, and uh, he would go on to be in the first three seasons of Miami Vice, and he is the villain in Mo Money, and he's incredibly charming at the same time, very, very sinister. Have you ever seen Mo Money with Damon Wayans? Oh my, oh my god, it's been such a long time since I've seen the movie. Which we'll probably cover on this show, but he's just one of those guys that pops up and always does his job, but he's not a household name. I really enjoy his uh, acting. Right, yeah, no, he definitely should have gotten like you know bigger supporting roles, that much certain. And he, then there was one particular character in Stripes, oh god, what was his name, Psycho or Crazy? Oh yeah, yeah, the, the, the short brown-haired movie. guy. He was a, uh, a in Death Warrant with Van Damme as one of his... Uh, Prison nemesis. Nemesi? Oh. Nemesi? <laughs> yeah, no, honestly, I thought him playing the part of Psycho, I think he definitely, if I remember correctly, like when it came to like screening and casting, like he definitely wowed them with what he was saying and doing. And quite frankly, he's one of the most memorable characters in this. Yeah, it's, uh, I adore PJ Souls in this. Um, and uh, what's it, Sean Young before she kind of became troublesome in the late 80s. Uh, can you yes. wait for a moment there? Sean Young was like the hottest thing in Hollywood, but she couldn't get a hit. And she tried so hard to be uh, in Batman Returns as Catwoman that people were like, oh, this lady's crazy. We need to not be around her. <laughs> yeah, no, she pretty much scared off Tim Burton. I mean, she was originally going to play Vicki Vale, but um, what had happened was she was in a horse riding accident. And so it had to go to Kim Basinger. Yeah, that's just terrible. You know that? that could have made her uh, even bigger. But I love Kim Basinger more, so I think we won. Yeah, no, for sure. Hands down. But yeah, no, it was, but still, you gotta admire like Sean Young, like the creative room, like Catwoman costume, and just like kind of going on set trying to wild them. I mean, honestly, I could say she'd pull it off, but I mean, and as a net bending as well, but ultimately, no, Michelle Pfeiffer. Right, and Annette Benning got pregnant, right? I'm sorry, we got off on a tangent here, but Annette Benning got pregnant, so she couldn't be in it either. Yeah, that was the problem. Um, But anyway. More notes. Oh, it's not a problem. Fucking MVP of this movie. Him and Bill Murray. I think, I don't know the behind the scenes that well, but I feel like Warren Oates actually hated Bill Murray. (laughs) You can just see it through the whole thing. Oh, no, there was definitely some tension in the background. I think there was one scene in particular... uh, where Oates was just like completely pissed off. You could tell like in his face, like, oh man, oh, this is real anger right here. And they probably filmed it just at the right time. Yeah, I'm it's pretty sure it was like cut. I bet you Warren is a very hardcore script guy. He doesn't improv, he doesn't waver from it. And Bill Murray is all, you know, so swinging for the fences in, in improv. Yeah. I bet you that's where the tension rose. Oh, yeah, no, you could definitely tell. Uh, between. Uh, Harold Ramis and Bill Murray with their scenes yeah a lot of that stuff was just improvised even Ivan Reitman like you no, know, Ivan Reitman uh, encouraged it heck even that scene where they're in the uh, John Larroquette's house and they're in the kitchen she pretty much her job was just naturally react to whatever Bill Murray was doing <laughs> and I'm like god this is so scripted they, she played it off so well I forgot Larroquette yeah this is kind of his uh, his first big thing uh, mind you he was the narrator in Texas Chainsaw Massacre <laughs> six years earlier <laughs> oh wow <laughs> damn um oh. what was I say oh uh, so what I was reading into this about the movie uh, is that it was a disaster on the first screening 
and they had to go do reshoots and clean it up and re-edit it and it's just like by miracle that it works wow oh god man i couldn't imagine that that movie you had to have gone through that well, oh, we, man, but that's the problem though uh, is movies that have a lot of improv are difficult there's only a few people who can really do it right some people just let the camera go and they don't rein it in. I think that's the problem with Mike Myers' movies is that almost every single movie he's ever made, he's drowning in his own ego. Uh, oh, this is improv. I can just wing this and, and just keep filming. Um, Ivan Reitman's a good director for improv, and so is uh, Christopher Guest. These are guys that know how to control the improv. Yes. Oh, Christopher Guest in particular. Oh, man, with the, uh, Waiting for Guffman. My gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Even that scene when he's just like um, filming himself and he's trying to do like a learning to do like new dances and he's so awkward and just dumb. Yeah, it's it's very yeah. difficult and a lot of comedies fall apart when they don't have that control. Because um, right. a lot of comedy is about precision. It depends on what kind of movie it is. Days of Confused, you can be more lackadaisical because it's a character piece, not a plot piece. Stripes is one of those that starts off as a character piece and ends up going all plot. And the finale, it turns into an action movie, and it's kind of surprising the two work so well. Oh, yeah, no, for sure. <laughs> Being in that secret band, like, going behind, like, you know, Russian lines. Of course, it's the 80s, that the tensions were high. Totally was still going on. But it's just cool how they didn't really get any uh, actual uh, action aspect of people. Everybody was strictly comedian. Even the Russian guards. Oh, yeah, Joe Flaherty. <laughs> That that's what it was, man. And there was one moment in particular when they're first marching. You know, it's the first day of boot camp, and um, you know they're they're marching along, and then they start singing uh, "Do What Diddy" by uh, Manfred Mann. And I think yeah, there was only like two people who will actually know the song, <laughs> like as far as that scene goes. Huh. Every, I think yeah, if I remember correctly, I was reading up on it. And there's only two people who were familiar with that in the line, and then I guess they kind of just had to go along with it. The, uh, I think it's a movie that they probably could have made ten sequels to if they wanted to, and thankfully they never did. Um, but if you're interested in the female side of all of this, also, with, surprisingly with PJ Souls, the year earlier they did Private Benjamin, which I actually think is slightly better than Stripes. Private Benjamin. Who was in that one? That was uh, Goldie Hawn. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, I still, I still have not seen that. Okay, I, I'll, I'll send it to you because it's, it's really good. Um, and it also has like kind of that journey where it's, but it's not as much improv. She's just uh, out of her element. She joins out of weird desperation and uh, really sticks to her guns. And it, uh, I was really proud of. You know, when, when you're a kid in the '80s, you don't see a lot of movies with strong female characters. And I saw Private Benjamin, I think it was one of the very first movies I ever saw where, you know, women were portrayed as weak and always need to be saving in the 80s when she was like, I'm going to save myself. You know, I'm going to save my crew. And I always thought that was really impressive. No. Oh, yeah, no, that's a good point. Yeah, they didn't really have a lot of those movies going on. The uh, the but, second... Go ahead. No, 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 no. I was uh, going to say, yeah, no, Stripes, I think, is a masterpiece. Natural comedic masterpiece, especially that little... Uh, display they do even after they're like hours late <laughs> and then they get they get signed to the uh, van yeah 
You know, I just thought about all uh, four movies we we're discussing today had strong female women. I'm thinking all the movies that are on my list for the most part. So I, I, what I want, I know she's not a big part of it, and I can't even remember her name right now, which is a kind of insulting. I apologize, but History of the World Part One has the mom from Dawson's Creek, Margaret Mary Humes, I think is her name, or Mary Mar- something like that. And um, they also they didn't play her down as a dip or or needing saving. I thought she was a strong female lead. And I will admit to this right now, Jacob, uh, I was really on the fence about even talking about this movie because the last time I saw it, I got bored halfway through. And this time I saw it, and I was completely overjoyed. Yes, good. I'm glad you like that. Yeah, and you're right. It is Mary Margaret on the back of the case. I own this on Blu-ray. Um, me being a Mel Brooks fan, you know, watching Blazing Saddles, um, Spaceballs, Robin Hood, Man in Tide, Dracula Dead, loving it. I haven't really seen much of his earlier stuff. So, IFC, I guess, they were doing a celebration of Mel Brooks. This was before, you know, they sold out and got advertisements and whatnot, and it was completely uncensored. I was watching things like, you know, Silent Movie, and I think this was one of the ones that popped up as well. And, my God, again, just overjoyed with, like, every single scene, you know, Dom DeLuise as, you know, uh, Caesar of Rome. Um, just Orson Welles narrating it, like all the little scoops they did throughout each era. Beautifully done. And then, of course, you know, one of the most famous lines from this movie was Melbourne saying, it's good to be a kid. <laughs> yeah, I've never seen such a movie. I've seen bits and pieces of it on Comedy Central, and that's where I saw this movie the first time. I saw it back in college. And I always thought, like, oh, the second half, once they get past Rome, it gets kind of slow. And, um,. And I thought that when I saw it about five years ago, I was like, the first half is so amazing. But the second half, I just can't get into. But this time, I really just, I put down my phone. That really helps. You know, nothing reading while I'm watching it. And I just really got into it. But I still say the first half is stronger than the second half. But I wasn't bored this time. And uh, this also kind of a love letter to the comedians of the 50s and 60s. This is kind of like their final hurrah. And... Uh, we opened up with Sid Caesar, who was like the king of comedy in the, the 50s and 60s. And I believe that's where Mel Brooks actually started, was writing for his show. And it's almost all silent, except for like grunts or whatever. And that's all gags. It's set up like a Looney Tunes cartoon or, or an old MGM cartoon where it's just uh, quick segments. Quick, you know, joke, 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 joke. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it was. Run on jokes. And it was just performed really neat, like... Then we witnessed the first heterosexual marriage. Bonk, take her in the cave. Then <laughs> what the hell was American? It creates oh, a musical man. by dropping things on people's feet. Yeah, <laughs> just bashing them with large stones. Um, uh, and then there was a oh yeah, funerals. It's like it's like oh well, they didn't have much time to prep for funerals, so it had to be done quickly. They just toss out the body and sit on it and walk away. Uh, and, oh no! And then there was a part with the uh, commandments. He's like, right. you know, God talking to Mel Brooks. He's dressed up as um, uh, Moses. Um, actually, that robe he wore, I think, was from the Ten Commandments film with Charlton Heston. He's like, I hear you, Lord. I hear you. Even a deaf man can hear you. <laughs> <laughs> it was originally supposed to be Fifteen Commandments, but he drops one of the plaques on accident. So it's just end. Yeah, it's the gold. This part is just so wonderful to me. The Roman Empire part is, 
it's so fast, so funny, and there's just non-stop gags, and just this constant put-upon uh, comicus, which is uh, Brooke, uh, Mel Brooks's character. Um, he, if you haven't seen the movie, Mel Brooks plays a different character in each segment. And uh, he's trying to be a stand-up comedian in Roman times, and he keeps accidentally insulting uh, the emperor. And they're setting up all this stuff with uh, uh, Gregory Hines, who's a slave, but he's free. Uh, we have Madeline Kahn returning to... I, I think she might have missed a couple Mel Brooks movies. Um, and there's Shecky Green, who's a classic old-school comedian. There's a guy in here named Ron Carey who was in uh, Barney Miller, um, who I really enjoyed. He was the guy uh, who was uh, Mel Brooks's like, uh, handler or agent or whatever you want to call it back then. Possibly, yeah. I think it was handler agent and co-writer as well. Uh... Sorry, I fight off a sneeze. I, I had some climb up my nose there, and I was like, yeah. Yeah, good. All right. There was um. Yeah, there's also like uh one of Mel Brooks' writers, you know, you noticed like who's in like every little segment. He'll help out with the movie. <laughs> or like when they're like trying to find Mel Brooks, Gregory Hines, and um, Mary Margaret Humes. You know, after trying to escape from the general. Uh huh. <laughs> it's like. Uh, it's like, wait a minute, where are you going? You're supposed to be going that way. I said that flank, not this flank. I flunked flank. You flunked flank. Get the flank out of here. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. The uh, or the weed joke is the only thing I think it's really dated here, but it still works. Oh, absolutely. Um, what I did want to say as well was Gregory Hines was actually his character. Uh, was supposed to be played originally by Richard Pryor, but Richard Pryor got really sick at the time. Oh, was this when he caught on fire? This was, had to have been around that time. I think... Oh, yeah, no, he was caught on fire, but yeah, no, they never mentioned that in the interviews. Oh, wow. Yeah, I think this is when he caught on fire at the time, and yeah, he couldn't do it. So it did go to Gregory Hines. I, forgot, I think... Who was the one who brought Gregory Hines up? Was it Adam Khan? I think it was. He was kind of hot at the time because he was on uh, Broadway, you know, tap dancing. And uh, people forget sometimes that he was a tap dancer because he uh, was in so many movies. You know, like Running Scared and At Eva Destruction, Off Limits and stuff like that. The Cotton Club. Hmm, yes. But he is a, you know, he's a wonderful performer. He was a wonderful, wonderful performer. So. <laughs> I know, I'm getting tongue-tied trying to say that. What's, uh, <laughs> there's a musical number in the Spanish Inquisition that just kills me, and I can't remember the damn the damn song. I just watched it. The Inquisition. What a show. The Inquisition. Yeah, that's it. Or was it when the... Uh, no, no, that's it. Inquisition. Da, 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 da. <laughs> it's like a Busby Berkeley number <laughs> about torture. <laughs> yeah, I think... Um, I think Mel Brooks originally wanted Gene Wilder to do that part as Torquemada, but again, he couldn't get him at the time. It was a shame, but that would have been that would have been beautifully done. I mean, even if it was just for a small part, Gene Wilder would have killed it. <laughs> oh man! Sorry, I'm getting tired. Then, I apologize. It's been a long day of work, everybody. I, I'm kind of phone, I was phoning it in right now. I apologize. Oh my god! Sugar, 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 sugar. I should have injected myself with tons of sugar. Sugar, oh, honey, honey. All right, but yeah, uh, yeah. Getting into the French segment, that did uh, slow down just a little bit. I mean, you did, of course, have like returning uh, actors come back. You know, you had uh, 
Loris Leachman, then you also had um, Harvey Corman rules. Harvey Corman uh, is one of the funniest guys on the planet, yeah. and yes, those Pink Panther movies that he was in aren't exactly very good, but he is hilarious. Absolutely, my gosh! I mean, he was that he and okay, Tim, Tim Conway were like the biggest highlights of the Girl Burnett show. Oh, totally. They were just duo. But man, again, yeah, <laughs> I just like how they're constantly mispronouncing his his name. Count the money, count the money, Simone, Simone. He's like he's like stamp on the peasants on the ground because they're like they have a carpet rolled over them. Uh, yeah. <laughs> my favorite joke is Mel Brooks again is a put upon uh, P boy <laughs> and has to hold it. <laughs> you, you know, uh, Mike Myers stole that joke for Austin Powers. It still works, but it's clearly stolen from this where he just pees and pees and pees and he stops and he's ready to go. He goes, no, 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 hold on. Zip, 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 zip. You know, that's some more pee. <laughs> Wait for the shake. Then he gives him the coin, he drops it in the bucket. He's like, I'll get it. Oh, that's the worst. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Thank you, but, sir. Hey, this is right around the time of the yeah, <laughs> right around the time of the French Revolution, and of course the king, you know, played by Mel Brooks as well. He just again, you could tell he had a little bit much fun with that sequence. <laughs> oh man, he's like, "What are you talking about? The peasants hate me, and I'm like, but I love the peasants. I care for them." And then as he's like, you know, launching a clay pigeon, you know. It's, a, it's an actual human being. Oh. Then we have the switcheroo. We're going to have the whole uh, French Revolution and the executions. And all of a sudden, you know, he pulls the rug out from under you. And we have the segment from early in the Roman times. <laughs> Completely breaking the fourth wall. See, like, where were you in the last exactly. segment? <laughs> <laughs> He's like, well, what can I say, man? Movies is magic. Hold up. We're coming up to the end. It's just the end of the movie. It's like this giant slab mountain. And then as the credits roll by, it's like, wait a minute, where are you going? You gotta watch the previews for History of the World Part Two. See Hitler on ice, <laughs> or, or Jews out in space. I think, or the Viking funeral where they take off their helmets and they still have horns. Oh and yeah, that Jews was really good. Space. I love that one. <laughs> yeah, I know. And then when it came to Jews in space, like the way the song was set up, I'm like, okay, this is what set up Men in Tight. Because uh, it's the same melody and same chorus. Yeah. And again, still just overall wonderful. And it's like a little nod to Star Wars, you know, because they just realize, you know, this is going to become the most dominant uh, franchise of the sci fi genre. Right. So and just, of course, little... that influenced him with Spaceballs as well. Absolutely. Because that was the last genre he could go after. Ugh. But you have to think, like, I think with Spaceballs, he kind of had to, um, I think. He had to look back at history of the world part one and draw some influence from that. Like, huh? Play around with this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so we're talking about um, Richard Pryor, and that brings us to our third movie. And I think a lot of people hate this movie because they consider this a sellout moment, and I don't. I think Busting Loose yeah. is his first. Hey, let's try to find a new audience. He's not really toning it down. I don't know why people. This is his bad news bears. This is a legit yeah. movie. I mean, I think this is a great movie. And he plays uh, a reluctant awesome. father figure because uh, he's a con artist. And so we have the opening scenes. And the problem is I think 
after busting loose is when he started going more and more family friendly and then he was kind of repeating the bits that he did in busting loose you know the real fast talking con man you know reluctant hero kind of thing that he would do in like superman 3 and the toy and so on yes you're right but and honestly i did not think that busting loose was a solid movie again as you mentioned that yeah he's clearly looking for a, uh, a different audience and yeah just the way he played out in this movie there was one scene that really got me, like, you know, when he's being sentenced, like, after he got, gets caught in the beginning of the movie, after, you know, you know, trying to rob that van. But Paul Mooney was the one that took off all the TVs anyway. Yeah. Who was also a co-worker of his. And, um, yeah, just him, like, appealing to the judge, like, oh, my God, you know, take me away, punish me, this, that, like, accepting the sentence. <laughs> so, like, the judge would pity on him, like, no, never mind, here, just take this. <laughs> Yeah, you're, it, just on, you're just having it's, uh, it's a little sitcom in the way it's set up is that you know he is on parole he gets a second chance but he has to escort these children with Cicely Tyson to Oregon to this farm because their home has been destroyed and they have nowhere to go and they can't get adopted or no one wants to adopt them because they're all kind of problematic we have a, a little a teenage Asian girl who was a hooker um, forced in prostitution. We have uh, the firebug. We have the blind kid, um, and just everybody's kind of a misfit in one way or another. So they they don't get adopted. So she's going to take them to some place where I think it was her grandparents' home or farm, and uh, then finds out that the farm is going to fall in uh, foreclosure and being taken away from them. The minute they get there, it's all it's all screwed up. So they have to find the money to save. Uh, the farm and that sets a, up another one of these great cons by uh, Richard Pryor and this one at least the villains yeah. are somebody that they, they need to be taken advantage of because they're one of those pyramid scheme fuckers oh god yes exactly like oh they're setting up all that I like how he's just like slowly skimming away at like the, all the bundles of cash and he's dressed up as a cowboy <laughs> his cowboy is hilarious. He loses himself in character sometimes, and I enjoy it to no end. He just, well, I just got this big old piece of chalk in my mouth, and I got the, you know, bow-legged way of walking or whatever, I got my big old hat, and all shucks kind of attitude. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, I think there was one mishap uh, along as the movie was progressing where it's like he's walking through the woods because the bus is, like, stuck in a ditch, and he needs help. But, of course, he's lost his patience with the kids. So he's, like, walking off really mad. And then he ends up running into the Ku Klux Klan. And the crazy thing is, he takes him back to the bus, you know, tell him about the kids. Like, they're all blind, they're all sick, and this and that. And the Ku Klux Klan ends up helping him get out of the ditch. Like, all <laughs> like, oh, those poor kids, you know, and just all of a sudden he turns them, you know, in his favor. And they help him get out. And he's like, well, bye, thank you. And <laughs> <laughs> I can. It's like, oh my! I don't even think that uh, Joe could like that. That that's a one-time thing that can never happen again or be replicated. It has to be done. I mean, exa- yeah, it has to be done at a certain time. It has to be done exactly right, and it has to be done by the right comedian. Because uh, I've, I've, I was listening to a commentary about this, and they were saying that they made Richard Pryor toothless, and I'm like, no, I don't think he. Look. Richard Pryor, the character, and Richard Pryor in real life are two totally different things, but I've read Richard Pryor's biography, and he's had situations in his life where you think that he would have spoke out, but he didn't. But he just kept it in, because I think his stage persona is not who he really was. Oh, yeah, no, there's definitely uh, differences in between that. 
But I think it's like later on, I mean, or no, then there was that announcement he made at the Academy Awards where it's like, uh, as far as, I think it was like his comedic persona at the time, he was talking about how black men will never ever get this kind of award. You know, trying to make it a, a comedic, uh, you know, deliver it comedically, but at the same time, he was being serious. Yeah. He, uh, this was a big hit for him, and I think that helped his career get, you know, further uh, accepted by the mainstream. There was no sequel, because it didn't seem like it should have a sequel, but there was a TV series of this five years later. Did you know that? No, I did not know that. Syndicated, starring Jimmy Walker. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's, I, I think there's a couple it. episodes on YouTube, but I remember watching it when it first came out, because uh, that's when I just started Discover. If I remember correctly, Fox was testing the waters to see if they would even be able to have an audience to build a network with. So the year before that, they started syndicating all these TV shows, you know, stuff that had been on but wasn't that successful or picking movies. So they picked Busting Loose, uh, and I might be wrong about some of these, uh, ha- what, What's Happening Now, which was a sequel to What's Happening. Uh, right. She's the Sheriff. Uh, they brought um, It's a Living Back, Charles in Charge, and it was just all these comedies that would sell on Saturday or Sunday mornings because those networks did not have cartoons yet. They wouldn't have them for like another five years. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, the Bustin' Loose was a one-season wonder because syndicated TV shows are different because they sell the entire season at once. Mm, okay. Whereas, huh. you know, we go through television now. Well, television has changed so much because a season could be eight episodes, and that's normal. Whereas, back then, you had to get the front 13 and then the back nine for the full season, and... Uh, with syndication, there was no worry. You worked for a whole year. You're, you're, you're already set up because you sold the commercial time for a whole season. Wow. Huh. Yeah. I think that's. I feel like that's how it is with like some of the CW shows. Uh, sometimes it is like that. Yeah, the CW is really... Uh, the same thing with Fox with their animation. They'll sign it up for a year or two at a time so they don't have to worry about it. Mm, gotcha. All right. Makes sense. The, uh, I do the, want to say this about... Oh, go ahead. Um... There were moments of heart for sure. Like he actually was trying to talk to these kids and understand them, and especially with like some of the trauma they've been through. You know, like the kid with the suit set fire. Like he's the one who actually killed his parents because of the fire. Yeah. And you know he's been trying to like recreate it. You know, like creating more fires just to try to put it out again. It's because he felt uh oh. It feels real. It is. It's, it's not pandering. I have seen so many of these family movies. I'm watching some sitcoms from the '80s. It is so heavy-handed, and I just feel like what they were doing with this movie is more of a realistic approach. Exactly. That's exactly what I was going to mention. And, you know, he ends up, like, kind of, you know, again, come, becoming a father figure to him. Like, they all love him at the end before he gets taken away. Of course, I forget I forget how they bust him out or what they – oh, wait. That's right. I think they – um. Switch uh, ended up switching wallets with a parole officer. Oh yeah, that's right, that's right. <laughs> uh, but yeah, in the end, it did have a happy ending. And again, uh, this is a movie I could really watch again. This uh, the director of this was Oz Scott, a guy who really didn't have a lot of filming history, and the film did not go well. They fired him halfway through. And brought in Michael Schultz, who is the director of Car Wash. And another movie we'll discuss in the next segment of this is called Carbon Copy. 
and uh, he's a more prolific, I think a, a much better director, and uh, sadly because of DGA rules, uh, unless you film a certain percentage of it first, you do not get credit. So Oz Scott is still the guy who has credit for this instead of Michael Schultz. Exactly. So, and speaking of that, now that you mentioned that little fact, I mean, you can't be mad at people who are mad at Joss Whedon for Justice League. Don't. Just don't. Yeah. <laughs> he was hired to do a job, and he did his job. That's it. Boom. Done. Exactly. Those are reshoots for some of uh, Zack Snyder's in the studio's ideas. Yeah. Not his. <laughs> anyway. Um, what, right. what is our final film? I can't remember now. Oh, oh, nobody's uh, perfect. Nobody's perfect. <laughs> hey, that actually is a good setup. The <laughs> uh, main character is, um, oh gosh, he played Welcome Back, Cotter. Uh, Gabe Kaplan. Uh, yes, exactly. Hit. This movie definitely centers around uh, three particular people who do suffer from psychological problems. One, of course, has a uh, short-term memory loss. <laughs> To the point where he even forgets how to drive a car. <laughs> and then, of course, uh, the other actor who played uh, Pongo plays in Saddle, and he was also in Porky's. Uh, Alex Karras? I can't remember his name. Yes, Alex Karras. Like, he still uh, believes that his mom's around. Uh, I forget what that is. Like, an attachment kind of syndrome. And then, of course, there's Robert Klein, who suffers from multiple personalities. Uh, One's more like a Scarface kind of gangster. The other's like uh, a Hollywood actress. <laughs> and Robert Klein just plays it beautifully, I will say. Whenever he, depending on which persona he adopts. What I love about the movie, uh, oh, we should mention Susan Clark is another strong female. Just like I forgot to say, Cicely Tyson is absolutely right. amazing in um, uh, Bustin' Loose. Bustin' Loose. But also, yeah, Susan Clark is a very strong woman, and at no point in any of these movies do they play them dumb. And she's the one who's actually in control most of the time, but she reluctantly goes along with them because she loves them so much. That's the thing about this movie, is not only are they very kind and caring for each other, but the director never really mocks them. Their situation is unusual and funny. But he never makes them look like fools. They know they have problems. They know they're trying to fix them. That's why they're in therapy. And he never treats them as if they're freak shows. He wants you to have sympathy for them. Exactly. I mean, I... Even when, uh... Oh, gosh. Why, did, why am I forgetting his name again? Welcome back, Potter. Okay, so... Uh, Gabe Kaplan, uh, real quick, not a lot of people are going to know who he is because he was a stand-up comedian who got Welcome Back, Cotter for five seasons, I think five seasons. He did three movies. Yes. The first one was a basketball movie called Fast Break, which was a minor hit, and that led to the next two movies. Nobody's Perfect made nothing, even though it got wide release. It, it bombed hard. And the third movie got released wow. in two screens called Tulips with Bernadette Peters, and then he went back to stand-up comedy, and apparently he is a legendary poker player and, and uh, that's what he does now he uh, he hosts uh, you remember when the poker craze from like 15 years ago he was one of the guys driving that yes oh wow damn good to know hmm interesting um, but yes honestly uh, go ahead as this movie does out, his character like you know everybody even does stuff for the people nobody understands the condition like um, even his even like the manager is work. Like, are you going to make those sales? I'm definitely going to. And then he completely forgets that he's trying to sell a product right then and there. Even as he's like pouring ice cream, chocolate syrup, all this messy stuff on this coat. 
all just to display that product that even the other customer had to help him out. <laughs> I love the fact that he was just like, what? Why is this stuff on here? And he goes, you put it on there. He goes, what is it? And he's like, ketchup and ice cream and whatever. And he goes, what do you do for a living? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, that's right. But the funny thing is, too, the product actually worked. Yeah. <laughs> what, what I enjoy is that it's an escalation. First, it spends enough time that you get to know what their conditions are. And then the second part is how their lives are affected by it. You know, he has no memory, so he's constantly getting fired. Um, Richard Klein, uh, Robert Klein is a travel agent, and everybody, every personality he has is different. So when people talk to him on the phone, they don't know who they're talking to. And they're like, well, I talked to, you know, Richie or whatever. And he's like, yeah, he's not here right now. Well, I only want to talk to him. He knows what he's doing. He's like, well, no, let me take care of you. No, no, no. I want to talk to Richie. And, uh... And then um, uh, Alex Karras' character, his mom is a therapist <laughs> who has people just sit in a room. <laughs> and, of course, since she isn't around anymore, it's just an empty office, and the couples always seem to find time to make up to each other. And so it's so ironically successful. I know. That's, not, that's what I was about to mention. <laughs> oh, man, again. Uh, and the way it plays out, too, the plot... You know, happens to be them trying to hijack, hijack a boat in a cannon and, you know, threaten the mayor for, uh, you know, pay for the damages to their car due to the fact that they're neglecting all these big potholes. Yeah, and that, oh, it's so comically big, yet somehow believable. They hit that pothole that's the size of, like, a meteor blast, and the car splits in half. <laughs> I know, that was, like, one of the ridiculous things. Uh, but yeah, that's all they wanted to do. And it was only like, what, $680? I know, they're and committing then... federal crimes to make a point. They're stealing military equipment. They're imitating military people. They're holding the city ransom. They're, they're threatening the mayor. And it turns out the whole thing is interlooped with these mob guys who are trying to steal a money truck. And they're trying to get the, uh, their crime to overlap with that crime. So they look like heroes. And it, each... Each 20 minutes, whatever, is so wildly different than the previous one as they're building and building and building, but at no point does it feel like it's overwhelming or confusing. Oh, absolutely. I know. It all just, like, added on top of each other. It just blended so perfectly. Yeah. It's like, oh, wait a minute. They're putting bacon they're putting bacon and avocado on my cheeseburger. Oh, go for it. It's delicious. It's, yeah, um, it's strange this movie is uh, lost. I mean, it was never on DVD. It was only ever on VHS. And then I, I saw it streaming on uh, Vudu, and uh, I had to. I had, it's such a wonderful movie. It's so hard to find. Oh, man. Like, knowing that, yeah. Uh, if you can get it digital, uh, especially when physical's not available, get it. Uh, also, there was one scene I was going to mention. <laughs> um, I think it was just, uh, yeah, them even culminating the idea of just doing all this just to pay off a fine you know he, <laughs> he ends up convincing his girlfriend who was pretty much the anchor to that entire group and was trying to help them set all straight and yeah just that in itself it's delivery and it's tasting I actually enjoyed it and then at the, the end is what kills me the most uh, they go around the pothole but then of course uh, Greg uh, oh god what's his last name Gabe Kaplan Gabe Kaplan yeah Gabe Kaplan 
Gabe Kaplan. I was right. I would doubt myself. Anyway, Gabe Kaplan, again, forgets that he's in reverse and backs the car up into the pothole, and then they perform the plot again, you know, stealing a ship and, and imitating military personnel, but this time they got the huge work again. <laughs> oh. the mayor goes along with it. I'm curious uh, if you know who directed this. What was the name again of the director? Peter Boners. Peter Boners. Peter Boners. <laughs> I cannot say that name without <laughs> Now, I know this name. I know this name because he used to be a big director on Who's the Boss. And I saw that and I was flabbergasted. And then apparently on his IMDb, he has directed maybe 10,000 sitcoms. It's insane. He's only directed like three movies. And one of them was Police Academy 6, which I actually enjoy quite a bit. But almost everything here is like 93 episodes of Murphy Brown. That's crazy. Wow. Yeah, no, that is insane. That is intense. I mean, at least he's got, you know, uh, again, comedic timing and everything. Uh as you go for that, but I think TV was definitely his niche. Yeah, it's, uh, uh, I can't remember what we're doing in the second half. I know one of them, Carbon Copy, Caveman, and I had a couple others written down, but we're going to take a break here, and uh, you'll hear some classic commercials, and we'll come back with the second half of this episode. Are you ready for it, Jacob? I'm ready. Let's go. Let's play ball. After these messages... We'll be right back. <laughs> I keep dragging out that pause. <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe you. All right. Oh, man. We'll be back.
the uh, the pig Americans and their comedies. They think they're so funny. The capitalist pig dogs. That's <laughs> all they are, and that's all they will be. They are very selfish. No collectivism in their in, uh, mentality. Oh, but they give the comedy back to the peoples. Yes, that's true. They make us laugh. That we can admire. You have the L so perfectly on the Russian. You, you, you the, the L's. I don't know how you fucking do that. <laughs> Trust me, comrade. I don't know. This is quite <laughs> ridiculous. We're not gonna get. We're almost to the era where it seems like a lot of the comedies had Russians in them. But '81 is still basking in the glow of. Hey, we gotta start changing comedy because SNL is becoming the thing. And you know, uh, we're not mm. full on into Reagan comedy yet. Um, here's the embarrassing part is, uh, what are the four comedies we're discussing? I know one of them's student bodies. I can't remember the other three. There was Caveman, right. there was Neighbors, and, oh gosh, Underground Aces. Thank you. <laughs> this is ridiculous. So, uh, obviously, we mushed these episodes again. The other one we recorded two weeks ago, but... Uh, so this is the second half of our comedy discussions of 1981. I looked at 1982 and it ain't looking good, so I'm completely fine with us doing two episodes on one year. Uh, so let's just start off. We're talking about SNL. Let's start off with the movie that a lot of people hate, and it was kind of a financial disaster. Critics didn't like it, but it has a very weird charm to it, and it's dark and disturbing, and Neighbors is a unique beast. There's nothing like it. I, yeah, that's what I felt at first. I was kind of thrown off with, um, you know, uh, the certain scenes where, it's like, John Bushy walks uh, out of his room, just sees, uh, oh, gosh, I'm forgetting her name. I should know it. Kathy Moriarty? Yeah, Kathy Moriarty. And the next thing you know, it's Dan Eckert. I'm like, is this kind of like a Dr. Jekyll, Miss Hyde kind of thing? Oh, no, they're two separate people. But, yeah, no, again, Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi together, you know, the original not ready for primetime players here. Uh, their chemistry is just undeniable. And the way John Belushi played it off, I'm like, oh my god, I don't... I just couldn't get used to John Belushi playing just like a solemn, mellow, you know, suburbanite. Right, and, and that's the thing, off. is during production, they... Uh, or during pre-production, they were actually assigned the, the opposite. Dan Aykroyd was going to be the straight lace, and Jim Belushi was going to be the crazy one, but they argue with John G. Allison about switching the roles and that would be unexpected and he finally gave in and, and that's how it turned out because I think Jim Belushi Jim, sorry, John Belushi was um, tired of playing the same kind of crazy wild man Oh, precisely I mean, you see him like that in Blues Brothers Animal House, uh, 1941 it's like, let him just mellow out for a minute Yeah, but I think <laughs> he seems a little nervous portray. he doesn't seem completely comfortable but that's also hard to tell because his character himself is supposed to be completely uncomfortable. Exactly. Like, throughout the... Um, again, like, throughout the movie and throughout the premise uh, of this uh, of this character and how this movie plays out, yeah, he's just, like, your typical, you know, stay-at-home, kind of somewhat paranoid suburbanite. And this is, like, a brand... <laughs> and, this, this is one of those uh, suburban areas where it's on the edge of everything. You know how cities usually break down as you go deeper and deeper? you got the new developments, yes. and, and that's what he has. He has a development that never really took off, and it's out in the middle of nowhere. He has no friends, nobody to talk to, and he's on this little cul-de-sac, and there's only one other house near him, and Dan Aykroyd and his wife move in, and they're out of their fucking minds, and they're always testing their limits. 
Oh, God, yes, especially with um, Kathy Moriarty, like, jokingly seducing John Belushi. And, like, the discussions at the dinner table, it's just absolutely absurd, where it's just like, you know, uh, he's accusing uh, John Belushi of, like, trying to sleep with Kathy Moriarty, Dan Aykroyd is, and it's just all part of the little game just to test the limits. Yeah, and, so and yeah, and, and it's weird is because John Belushi's character is so repressed that he loves it and he hates it at the same time. He's fighting with him, but there's a part of him that keeps wanting to go further. Exactly. I mean, these two neighbors are just trying to break him out of his comfort zone, and I can even tell, like, throughout the movie, like his wife, uh, John Belushi's wife, is trying to get him to do that too, but in the end. It all it ends up it ends up working out. Gets out of his comfort zone. Like he and like you know Dan Aykroyd and Kathy Moriarty move. He moves away with them. And as he's leaving, he burns down the house. <laughs> yeah, and and Dan Aykroyd is uh he looks strange in this movie. He dyed his hair shock blonde, but he also I think he's wearing blue contacts to make his eyes look different. And there's something un and it's it's perfect for the character. It makes you uncomfortable because there's something just not right about it. Yeah, no, I just, like, gosh, just noticing that, I'm like, yeah, no, he's definitely trying to be somebody else. He's your typical Aaron. But Shock Blonde, it, that's like, you know, what, close to Platinum? Yeah, say? I would the, say, like, uh, Billy Idol Blonde. Spectrum? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was the, well, it was segueing into the 80s, so, right. you know, that was becoming a thing. This is so strange. The director of this is not known for comedies. In fact, I don't think he did another comedy, but he's known for doing Rocky and The Karate Kid and Eight Seconds. He's known more like for the dramatic sports movies and stuff like that. So this is really strange. For him. I oh. don't know if he's exactly the right director for this, but he doesn't fail. Like I've seen a lot of people say he failed. Yeah, no, I wouldn't say he failed either. It was just kind of bizarre and out there and definitely a role reversal for John Belushi. Yeah. Uh, oh. Overall, though, I like I did enjoy that ending. Though, is when it had me. It really had me. I'm like, <laughs> uh, of course, there's like you know driving a car into driving the truck into the swamp with the dog in it, oh, that whole fiasco, and yeah. seducing John Belushi throughout it all. <laughs> and Dan Aykroyd just just hell of fucking with him throughout the movie. Like he pretends like he's sucked in the swamp, and then John Belushi's like coming back through his basement, and then Dan Aykroyd's there out of nowhere. <laughs> with him. My favorite part is the spaghetti dinner. The one that he demands he pays oh, all yeah. this money for spaghetti, and then he sees him make it in his own apartment. He brings it over, and they get that huge debate over it. And he's like, "You're bullshitting me." <laughs> I, I exactly. I, I like, yeah. <laughs> oh, man, this is one of those weird movies. This is this is one of the very first like really weird movies that my mother championed um, when it came out. She was like, "This movie's so strange, but so much fun. It's frustrating, but it's so crazy and wild. You can't hate it." And I think it's kind of sad is that the new Neighbors movie with um, uh, Seth Rogen and what's his name? What's the guy's Zach name? Zach Efron. Zach yeah. Efron oh, has yeah. kind of overshadowed. So when people talk about Neighbors, they're thinking of the new one. Oh, of course. Now, I mean, that was a huge hit, and it's hilarious. My, you know, don't get me wrong. Plus, again, I never even knew this movie existed until you told me about it. Oh, you know what would be funny is if they found a way to CGI Joe Friday into this and into John Belushi's role and just seeing Joe Friday go up against his alternate version. <laughs> so tightly wound and then this crazy man trying to break him. I would have loved it. Oh, exactly. All right, That's so... Huh? 
I've actually just watched Dragnet not that long ago with my dad, and I'm like, oh, wow. And it's still such a good movie. Yeah, I, wa- I, realized that I watched I, it last night, actually. <laughs> I realized that big muscle muscle guy, the guy uh, with the mustache and the gray hair, that was non from Superman 2. I'm like, right. I did not notice that. Yeah. The uh, <laughs> the uh, second, we're going to get to Dragnet eventually down the road, but that is 1987. We're in 1981 right now, and I want to follow up with the incredibly silly movie called Caveman. Starring Ringo Starr, Dennis Quaid, and uh, uh, Shelley Long. Oh, yes, or Shelley Long and John McTusak, I think. Oh, yes, you are correct. And um, this goes well. I wish I had, I had put paired this with History of the World Part One because it like it's it's the whole movie is basically that first ten minutes with Sid Caesar, where it's it's amazing how little English is used in this. There's only one guy, an Asian guy who comes in, he speaks English, and he's like, oh, you guys don't know what I'm talking about? Alright, okay, I'll just speak caveman talk with you, too. <laughs> exactly. There's one saying out of the entire group of all the cavemen they meet, <laughs> and everybody else is like grunts and just gibberish. Yeah. <laughs> and what was so funny, too, is like, they see that their intelligence uh, happen to be uh, developing better once they straighten their backs out. They were always hunched over. <laughs> And it was by complete accident. Yeah. And it's it's very... it's I don't want to say it's a kid's movie, but I would say kids would enjoy it. But it's so, like, a throwback to older comedy. Like Three Stooges and vaudeville kind of stuff. And very... I mean, without mm-hmm. any words, it has to, very um, uh, physical comedy oriented. But it's also... It, it spends some good money on stop motion animation and special effects. Oh, yeah, no. It definitely... I noticed that with a big uh, uh, dinosaur effects. And whenever that uh, giant sat frozen creature was uh, later on the movie, when they're all running near the end of it. Uh, but yeah, overall, it was enjoyable, and very hearty, and in the end, you know, as it played out, you know, Shelley Long's trying to get Ringo's uh, approval. I don't know what his like character's name was. I'm just gonna have to call them by, call them by their actual names. But, uh, yeah, no, Chilly Long, like, you know, there's a little bit of romance, you know, Ringo's uh, motivation is, of course, to impress John McTuzak's uh, girlfriend. But throughout the ordeal, like, he's, like, communicating with uh, Shelley Long, and Shelley Long's loving him. Then there's that big old campfire scene where all of them are just, like, drumming and playing music. And, uh, yeah, in the end, he ends up getting Shelley Long. He picks her over who he was trying to impress earlier. Yeah, yeah, but uh, what is his name? She was uh, the Bond girl. Spidey loved me. Is his wife um, Barbara Bach? I think is her name. Am I wrong? Barbara Bach, I think. Oh. Um. Was that? Yeah, she was in the Spy Who Loved Me. Oh, okay. Yeah, I know who which actress you're talking about. I was wondering why she looked familiar, but I'm like, eh, couldn't put my finger on it. Uh, two prices gags. Dennis Quaid is insanely funny in this, and you forget that he used to be kind of a funny guy before all the dramatic stuff took over. But there's a sequence where he slides through this thing and gets trapped and, and he's frozen. He gets out and he has to pee really, really bad. It's just ice cubes. It's just the sound of ice cubes dropping. <laughs> it's like he was frozen for so long. And then he's like trying to point out that there's something there coming after him, you know, as they're thawing the ice. <laughs> and then he just, yeah, he definitely does have a knack for physical comedy. Yeah. And, I mean, and Shelley Long is oh, it's such a treasure and it's sad that we don't see her much anymore. Yeah. I mean, it's good. Oh, my God. Especially uh, when she became uh, 
Oh, gosh. Carol Brady in the uh, Brady's Bunch movie. Yeah, yeah, me and Mindy just discussed that for our We Got the Beat show. Do you know what's funny? Shelly Long went to the same high school as my mother. I mean, there's there's a lot there's a big age difference, but I believe her cousin Melissa Long and my mom were really good friends, and she was like a newscaster for years on uh, NBC, I think. But um, wow, um, so she's like my hometown, uh, you know, Fort Wayne, Indiana. She's one of the few famous people from that town, and um, wow. so she was like when Cheers was on, she was just tweet uh, we, we, a queen, you know. <laughs> yes, I understood, man. I know exactly what you mean. The uh, That's awesome. are any famous people from where you are from? <laughs> You're not from Napa, right? You moved to Napa later. Yeah, uh, when I was a kid, I originally lived in San Bruno and just bounced around the Bay Area. Okay, yeah, because Napa's weird because it seems like all the rich people move there later. <laughs> Nobody's from there. <laughs> exactly. I mean, unless you grew wine. Yeah. The. Uh, hey. Uh, no, my favorite gag in this, though, is the one where Dennis Quaid falls asleep and there's a giant bug on his face and he's trying to wake up, uh, <laughs> wake up a Ringo Starr and he just, and then his idea to stop the bug is to smash its guts all over the place. It's so <laughs> gross. It's so funny. It is, yeah. <laughs> you see that be uh, motivation for that one gag in the Land of the Lost movie where that giant mosquito is like, Oh, yeah, I remember that, yeah. Wow, that, that movie had so much potential. It just didn't work. Yeah, I overall still enjoy that movie. Yeah, it, I, well, I think the problem is Will Ferrell, when he's not reined in, when they're not... Are you blowing into your microphone? What are you doing? Uh, sitting still? Oh, that was weird. Okay, you had a weird feedback. Maybe, maybe it's, my fa- it's my facial hair problem. Uh, your beard get long? Yeah, you, you got a quarantine beard? No, not really. I mean, just I'm trying to grow my goatee out and my uh, mustache a little bit more. Ooh, are you are you gonna uh, go Green Arrow on it? Well, think it. Oh, or Obi Wan Kenobi, whichever one. Okay, that sounds cool. Um, <laughs> there's no segue from his goatee to the next movie, Underground Aces, which is very similar to uh, like Car Wash. It has that vibe where it's a bun- It's a big, big cast. There's only a few guys that really move forward to the lead. Um, but for the most part, it's a big ensemble comedy at a workplace, very much like Car Wash or DC Cab. This is one of those lost movies. The only way I found it was uh, a bootleg, um, because it only has ever been on VHS, and every once a blue moon it would show up on Stars. Right. I honestly, wholeheartedly enjoy of, the, of this bunch. I absolutely re- enjoy this movie. I mean, again, as you said, ensemble cast. There were quite a few faces that did seem familiar. Um, I. Do know Sid Haig was there, although his character was completely whitewashed, as was you know another character's. But hey, yeah. it was the eighties, sadly. Yes. <laughs> but um, oh, man. but yeah, Dirk Benedict from Battlestar Galactica and A Team. You have a young Melanie Griffith. Um, oh, that's look. right, she was in that. Yeah, that one of the guys, her. one of the sweat hogs from Welcome Back, Cotter, Robert, uh, Robert Hagless, I think his name is. But yeah, it's just a lot of the guys that look familiar. No one really broke out from this uh, movie. But it's just these guys goofing around. Dirk Benedict's the new guy, and it's at this hoity-toity hotel um, where these guys are horsing around in, in, in their world. Like, it's, it almost seems like a whole different universe from what's going down in the basement or whatever, you know, down the lower yeah, levels. Yeah, the valet. Yeah, it's the world of the valet, and the, their world compared to the rich people's world is so wildly different, and it's so entertaining. Oh, absolutely. Again, yeah, it was almost the same concept as uh, Caddyshack, 
Yeah, you know but, what? Yes, that's another one where it's this kind of set of a workplace. But that one focuses so much on uh, just a few individuals that it's hard to see it as an ensemble. Right. And, of course, with this one, I think everybody had, like, uh, equal amount of time and focus and development. And it, couldn't, it didn't get you lost either. Yeah, it's... Um, oh, I forgot T.K. Carter's in this as DJ. And T.K. Carter is known for being in The Thing and... Um, uh, uh, Dr. Detroit, he was just in, uh, what's that movie with, uh, Seems Like Old Times. Seems Like Old Times. Yeah, Seems Like Old Times, and, um, oh, what's that Walter Hill movie? I just, uh, Southern Comfort. Uh, he's a really great actor. I think the last time I saw him, though, was he was in the first season of Saved by the Bell, when it wasn't called Saved by the Bell, it was called Mi- uh, Good Morning, Miss Bliss. Uh, oh, really? The I first, didn't even know that. Yeah, the first season of Saved by the Bell, they were not, the, the kids were not the focus. It was, um, son of a bitch, what's her name? She's from Parent Trap. Haley Mills. Uh, Haley Mills, ah. and it was on the Disney Channel. And the guys who owned the rights, when when Disney Channel canceled it, a year later they retooled it. They let all the adults go, basically. And they only kept Screech, Lisa, and Zach. And then they recast the rest of the kids. And that's when they added, um, oh, no, no, they kept, um, Mr., um, Mr. Belding? Is that his name? Yes. Yeah. They kept Mr. Belly. How did I get here? How did I get on this? Oh, T.K. Carter. <laughs> exactly. Um, All because of T.K. Carter. <laughs> but my favorite sequence in this is there is a Rube Goldberg setup with a bowling ball. Well, tons of bowling balls, but one specific bowling ball yeah. makes its way through the entire place and finds its way under this car that they've been working on forever, trying to make this sweet-ass ride that they use in contests. And it ends up destroying the entire car. Spray paint goes everywhere. I think it sets on fire. <laughs> yeah, like anything. Like Murphy's Law, anything that can go bad will go bad. Yeah. Oh, you know what? It's, it's all because of that bowling ball. It's on Epics right now if you're interested in seeing it. And uh, it's one of those somewhat lost movies that has never gone on DVD or Blu-ray. And it's so entertaining. And, oh, look. Oh, it's on um, Amazon. If you have Prime, it is free right now. All right. So if anybody wants to watch this gem, go for it. Yeah. This like say, what was the one we watched last time? Um, Nobody's perfect. It's one of, another one of those lost movies. It's really good. Yeah. And again, I will have to say, Underground Aces. There was uh, two more appearances that did take me by surprise. One was um, Frank Gorshin. Oh right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I'll, I, I mean. He has aged so much to the point where I thought he was almost a Dick Tracy character. I'm like, dang. I didn't realize it was that big. <laughs> yeah, and uh, he's the guy who's desperate to bust these guys for horsing around and causing chaos. So desperate. He's the security yeah. for um, for the hotel. And then the hotel manager. I keep forgetting his name. He was Lumiere. Oh, the, right. The Law and Order. The um, Dirty Dancing. Um, uh, Orbach. Jerry Orbach. Yeah, that's it. Yes. Oh, man, yeah, again, <laughs> I just love how he's just, like, taking notes the entire time. <laughs> As everything's going around him, yeah. thinking, like, it's something else to saw, talk to them about this, talk to them about that. Because he only realizes, like, he can only do so much as, you know, the hotel manager. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's not just the hijinks, so there are there is a trifecta of romances, and they're all different levels. Yes. There's, there's the Middle Eastern guy who wants to know what it's like to be an average Joe, so he uh, gets rid of all his entourage and uh, changes his clothing or whatever, and then just so he could fall in love with a, you know an average girl, so she wasn't loving him for just how rich and famous he was. 
And then we had Dirk Benedict and uh, Melanie Griffith. They're they're a really sweet couple because they're both, I think, kind of genuine and uh, uh, good-hearted. And then you have Robert Haglis, whose character is a little scheming, and he, he's trying to get a girl who's about to get married, right? No, that's the Middle Eastern guy, right? She's about to get married to some snooty yeah. jerk. Okay, yeah. But it, it's, and it's, then her sister, I believe, yeah, or photographer friend. Uh, the, yeah, the maid of honor. He's trying to go after the maid of honor. He actually like, wants to settle down because he's horsing around, sleeping with as many women as possible, and then he meets this girl, and he wants to get serious. Yeah, I think there's a lot of heart, even though there's a lot of hijinks as well. Um, oh, absolutely. I would say that's the best of the four movies. The next one, there's so much potential in student bodies. There's stuff that I love in it, and there's stuff that just frustrates me. And that's the curse. Absolutely. Around this time, we get, like, I think five uh, horror parodies. And most of them, Pandemonium's okay. There's some stuff that works in that one as well. But there's stuff like Wacko and Hysteria and National Lampoon's Class Reunion. And those three are just fucking terrible. And if you were to have a magical, if you took a magical universe wand or whatever and took all five movies, all the good jokes and plotting out of all five of those movies and put them together, you would have the the real airplane of uh, horror comedies. Right, exactly. Uh, Again, with student bodies, there was some stuff that I just found obnoxious, like the heavy breathing. See, I thought that was fucking hilarious. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to get this. <laughs> I love when he's choosing the I, weapons and he gets a fucking paperclip. It's so ridiculous. And he stabs the woman's face with paperclips. And he smothers all the guys in plastic bags. Again, this was like, a to me, it was a precursor to Scary Movie. That much is certain. Yes, yes. Yeah, this one's really devoted to the slasher boom around that time. But there's stuff where he has this running commentary, the killer does. And he's like, oh, man, how many stairs are there? Oh, I'm going to kill him just for making me walk this far up there to get to them. I can't handle it. I know. Um, there's a guy in there uh, who, I swear to God, is made of rubber. He has the weirdest. He was called Walking Stick. I'm not kidding you. That He was a stand-up comedian at this time, and he was called The Stick or The Walking Stick. And uh, It was he, The Stick, yeah. yeah. He is like nine feet tall and made of rubber. He is so captivating and bizarre. Exactly. I know. I'm watching it and I'm like, even as it's like, (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm just trying to collect myself here, uh, trying to describe it. His little blow-up doll girlfriends, the ones that keep floating away, comes back with another one, just dancing around with it. It's just so absurd. I love it when they're having the meeting to discuss what to do about the killer, and he just walks into the office, and uh, he starts peeing into the trash can. And instead of apologizing and realizing what's going on, he looks over at the principal and goes, Is it normal to pee red? <laughs> oh, yeah. That's right. And then the principal's explaining it. I'm like, well, considering, like, before this was remodeled into an office, this used to be the restroom. So he just has to be, you just have to bear with it. Yeah. <laughs> and then, like, and then uh, that little bowl, it's like, this is a really good punch. It's like, I didn't make punch. That's pee. That's my pee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> there's some stuff that really works, but what doesn't work is I don't give a shit about any of the protagonists. You know, the, the, the girl, I thought she sucked. Um, I thought that um, the, the showing the murders on the screen, I thought was completely unnecessary. Like, five, 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 five. Like, all right, I got it. Jesus. 
Yeah, you're right. And it's like, yep, yeah, no, that didn't last long. <laughs> now, I've, yeah, I've heard um, rumors that Michael Rich, Michael Ritchie produced this, but apparently the guy who started directing it, um, Mickey Rose, he worked with uh, Woody Allen a bunch in the 70s on his comedies, and then he decided to write wow. and direct this one, and, and then I guess it was falling apart. And, um, uh, oh my god, how did I just do that? The guy that, uh, who did I just say produced this? Damn it, Michael Ritchie. Michael Ritchie, sorry. Michael Ritchie, um, had to take over directing on this. So, some people say that he actually directed this. But I can't imagine that he, I bet you he just wrapped it up. Like, it was falling so far behind or something wasn't working. He came in to finish shooting and, and, and edit it. But, um... Michael Ritchie oh, is known wow. for doing Fletch and uh, Bad News Bears and, and a lot of really unique comedies. So this doesn't seem like his wheelhouse. He must have just greenlit because he thought it was interesting but not really for himself to direct. But then was forced to finish the project. Right, yeah. No, it, that's what it felt like. I, it felt like there was no stability with this movie. Yeah. But there's so much yeah, potential and just wasn't. they blow it. But um, next year when we discuss Pandemonium, or maybe it's 83, Pandemonium is probably uh, the most um, level of all the comedies. So there's some good stuff in there. Some of the stuff doesn't work. But you can see it's a clear vision from the cast and the director. Mm, okay, yeah. Do you know that, that's the one with uh, that one. That's someone with Carol Kane and Paul Rubens we were talking about? Oh, Judge yeah. Reinhold, where he's oh, in no, it's I, got yeah. Tommy Smothers as like a, a, a Mountie. Right, yeah, I think I might have seen this when I was younger. It was just coming up on Showtime, and I recognized Carol Kane, because I'd seen her in so many things as a kid, even, uh, you know, when she played Mama Adams in Adams Family Values. Oh my gosh, she kills it in that. She's so good. Oh yeah, she does, dude. What doesn't she... I mean, she's fantabulous in everything. Yeah, um... Fantabulous. Fantabulous. She's in Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. I love her in that. Yes, oh god yes. I was just about to mention that. <laughs> Um, so that is it. Those are the four movies in our second section of 1981. I, I just thought it was going to be too much if we discussed eight movies in one episode, so we had to break this up over two weeks. So it is on to the comedies of 1982. We will be back in two shakes and two flip-offs. I don't know. I have nothing there. I was trying to do a Chuck Woolery, but Chuck Woolery sucks, so I'm going to flip him off. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it works for me. I can't even remember who Chuck Woolery is. Chuck Woolery is the host of Love Connection. He's a huge Trumpy, so fuck him. Oh, God, yeah, no, fuck him. Yeah. All right, everybody, check us out on Facebook under Hit Rewind Podcast. And, Jacob, thank you very much for fitting this in. After work, I know you're probably tired. Yeah, and a little hungry. All right, hangry. <laughs> Don't get hangry. I told somebody. I'm not hangry, hangry. I, I told somebody when I get hangry, I could rip their arms off, beat them to death with it, and then eat those arms if they didn't get me some food right now. <laughs> <laughs> you cannibal, my gosh. I'm uh, a vicious, your I'm a inspiration. <laughs> I'm like, and your inspiration would be Cannibal the Musical, where Trey Parker just ripped the Yeah, uh, yeah, that's true, that's right. Um, Mortal Chuck. Kombat status, even. <laughs> Get over <laughs> here and bring that tomato sauce. <laughs> <laughs> Extra roasted. <laughs> Toasty! <laughs> <laughs> all right, okay, okay. All right, set us out, oh. set us out. All right, namaste and good luck, you guys. All right, and be excellent to each other. <laughs> <laughs>